Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Great to have you with us, or back with us, as the case may be. Thank you also for tuning in to our last episode, which was our first webinar Q&A and short deal analysis section. Uh, based on download numbers, you do seem to be enjoying it, um, or that could just be the fact that so many of us are stranded at home these days, which definitely seems like the right move. Seriously, folks, stay safe and think about those who can be hit pretty hard by this pandemic. Stay home unless you absolutely have to get out. Keep your distance from others as much as possible if you can and wash your hands with soap nice and long every time you uh, change environments. Together we can beat this thing. Now, as promised, and especially now that we've all got a bit more time on our hands, we've already started planning our next webinar, which will focus mainly on the two general topics which seem to have been the most popular with you guys and didn't receive nearly enough time during our first webinar. So we live and learn. This time we're going to perhaps briefly um, cover some basic due diligence, uh, purchase process, do a short review on that. If it looks like you're interested in these topics as well, but we'll devote half of the time or more to Q&A and deal analysis, uh, which again seem to be what you want to do a lot more of. So this episode show notes will have the link to the survey for the next webinar. If you've got any interest, I highly recommend you jump in there. It should only take you three or four minutes to fill in. Let us know which days and times suit you the best, which topics you'd like to focus on the most, and most importantly, to pre-submit any questions you might have so we can make sure to allocate enough time to answer them all. If you are present or listen to the first webinar, um, you know that's the main challenge, so covering all questions asked within the uh, seminar's limited time frame. So get those questions in there as early as you can. Even if you aren't going to be joining us live, filling in the survey and letting us know what you'd like discussed will make sure that we cover the topics that interest you, and then you'll have them in the recording. And I do promise to remember to uh, click the record button on time next time. And I will also forward the webinar files to all of you who provide an email address in advance so that you're not dependent on me remembering to also click the um, share button during the webinar as well for each and every file. So... For this episode, um, this one's actually a recording of an interview I've given to another podcast, one called My Worst Investment Ever, which is a really fun show about the mistakes that we all make as investors, whether it's when we're just starting out or because we get too clever for our own good and, and think we've got all bases covered when in fact we don't or just due to bad luck or lack of planning. So the show's host, Andrew Stotes, has done a fantastic job collecting these stories and interviewing people who are happy to share them. And of course, the main point in the whole exercise is not really the mistakes themselves or the bad investments themselves, but what we can and do learn from them as investors. So here it is, yours truly, as interviewed on My Worst Investment Ever. Enjoy. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete proven step-by-step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Ziv Nakajima Magan. Ziv, are you ready to rock? Yes, yes, definitely am. Let's do it. So Ziv was born in Israel, migrated first to Australia, then finally to Japan, 
where he and his wife run a buyer's agency and portfolio management company helping foreigners invest in Japanese property and manage their investments. Ziv, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Uh, okay, so about what you've said, I mean, I've moved out of Israel in my late 20s, uh, migrated to Australia, which is, I guess, the stark opposite of Israel, which is what I was looking for. So, you know, peaceful in nature and um, really just a, a financially war, security, stress-free place. And I loved it, uh, at least in my late 20s. And then I sort of married into Japan a few years after that. So I met my wife who was Japanese um, in Australia, started uh, coming and going to Japan. And then when our son was born, we sort of wanted to um, just strengthen his Japanese connection a little bit. Um, and we thought the best way we'd do that to just uh, throw him into the deep end sort of thing. And so we moved here. We've been here for about eight years now. Hmm. And uh, it's just kind of interesting for the, when I first went to Japan, it was 1989. And I would say it was pretty vibrant. You know, Japan, Japanese companies were winning the day and all of that. But, and then, and then I became an equity analyst in 1993. And at that time, Japan had just kind of gone through the peak of the property bubble and the stock market bubble, and then was moving into a declining phase. If you were to compare that Japan 20 years ago, 30 years ago to today, I'd imagine it's a much different place, particularly the demographics. I'm just wondering, how does one, if someone was in Japan right now, what are some of the things that you've seen that, that, that demonstrate the demographic challenges that Japan is facing? Well, I guess... Um on the one hand, you're right. Uh, it definitely Japan went through the doldrums from you know the early '90s to just about 2000 and late 2012. It kind of bottomed out. And um, but the thing is about Japan is that you wouldn't notice it. Like in other countries, if a country goes through a depression, um, you know there's uh, bank runs and people are finding it hard to make ends meet, and the consumer market takes a hit. And here. It's sort of business as usual in a way, and some of it is is macroeconomics. I mean, the um, the debt that Japan has is pretty uh, insulated. It's mostly domestic debt, and um, people don't tend to um, vocally, at least, um, you know, speak out against the government or, or call for revolutions or any of that sort of thing. So it's still a very vibrant society. It's still a very uh, very much a consumer's market. People love shopping. They love going out. Um, I guess you feel it most when you travel out of Japan and then come back. I mean, the uh, cost of living is pretty much half here between the early 90s to early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So whereas a lot of people still have that image, like your 1989 image, the image of uh, you know Tokyo being one of the most expensive cities in the world and Japan being one of the most expensive countries in the world. Um, if you step out, you suddenly notice that it's completely not the case. I mean food, rent, uh, daily commodities, everything is a lot cheaper here than it is in many other countries around the world. Yeah, I recall the last time I was in Japan, maybe two years ago, just a, a bowl of delicious noodles or ramen or other things was just such so reasonably priced. In exactly. fact, it wasn't that much more expensive than what you'd find here in Thailand. So I was pretty, that was pretty remarkable. Yeah, Thailand's been doing very well, actually, in the last few years, hasn't it? And it's definitely been strong. I mean, we're getting hit right now with the fall in tourism. 
for the from the coronavirus, but generally Thailand has been pretty stable. That's for sure. Yeah. I like to go there uh, once a year, and I've I've noticed that in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Okay, so this would be um, one of our first uh, Japanese property investments. So we entered this market. At that time, we weren't providing services to anyone. This was just our own personal investments that we wanted to get into. And um, we had some experience uh, with real estate property investment in Australia. And I've been very active um, in speaking with people all over the world, uh, mainly in English at that point in time, I, I wasn't actually uh, speaking, reading or writing Japanese at all and um, relied on my wife for all Japanese related uh, interactions. But I, I felt quite confident that I know what property investment is all about and how to, um, how to price rents and what's a good property and a bad property and locations and so forth. Um, so we sort of came in looking for the best possible deal that we could find. Now, Japan, not being really a, a capital growth oriented place, um, or at least it hasn't been for 25 odd years, now it's sort of coming back to that. You mostly look for cash flow uh, investments around here. So we looked for the, um, the highest rental income that we could find uh, in areas that we were comfortable with. And we found a, a sort of bulk purchase of three condo units in one city, in Kitakyushu City, which is uh, not too far from Fukuoka, where we live. Um, they came at a discounted price because the uh, the seller wanted to get rid of all three of them uh, and was happy to discount the price if it was all to the same buyer. And tenants have been in place, I think, five years, eight years, and 15 years, so quite comfortable tenancy-wise. Um, and return was through the roof. I mean, it was, um, at the time... 15 or 16 percent and net pre-tax so mm. really really attractive yields and we just bought all three of them and we started collecting the rent from day one and and uh, everything seemed hunky-dory as they say and it's great and um i think the first thing that i wanted to do we came in you know, all guns blazing. We know what we're doing. We've been we've been in the property market for a while now. We know all about the globalization, and you know, um, we've got three four languages between us. And so the first thing we looked at is uh, okay. We sat down with the tenancy leases and we compared the uh, rents that were payable in each and every one of those units. And we noticed that one of the units um, had slightly lower rent than the others. So we're talking about something like twenty or thirty dollars a month, so nothing mm -hmm. consequential. Um, but it seemed like the units were all on the same layout, same size. And um, for us at that point in time, um, we, we saw that the lease was about to end. Um, the fence lease was about to end uh, or needs to be renewed on that property that seemed to be getting slightly lower rent. And we're talking something like 14% uh, as opposed to 15 and a half. So mm. really nothing big, but... Um, me, you know, being an Excel sheet kind of guy, I'm like, well, it just doesn't look good. There's no reason for that one not to be making that same amount of rent. And we're only talking about a, a $20 or so a month extra. So we instructed the property manager that when that uh, tenancy lease uh, is about to be renewed, they should raise the rent to bring it up to speed with the other two units. Um, what we didn't know uh, at the time, because this was our first investment here, is that um, Japan being Japan... 
and uh, the economy being in deflationary mode uh, for the 25 or so years prior to that purchase, you don't raise rents <laughs> in Japan. You, you just don't do that. And um, the other thing, I mean, a tenant would be paying the same rent that they paid when they moved into the property, say, five or eight or 10 or even 20 years ago. Um, and they wouldn't ask you to reduce the rent when the contract is renewed just because for them, any sort of negotiation is is considered and feels like a conflict. So Japanese tend to avoid conflict uh, at any cost. So the tenants would never ask for uh, for the landlord to reduce the rent. Um, but on the other hand, the landlord would never ask for the uh, rent to be raised when the lease is renewed, and definitely not if um, salaries and cost of living and everything hasn't been going up as well. Mm. Um, but we didn't know that at the time. What we also knew in theory, but didn't actually realize in practice, is that Japanese professionals are also not very confrontational. So your property manager or your real estate agent or your insurance agent, if they think that you're making a mistake, they wouldn't come right out and say, no, don't do that. Mm. I mean, they would um, maybe make a sort of a vague comment or ask you if you're sure that that's the course of action that you want to take or... They wouldn't even say that that's not a good idea or anything of that sort. So when we instructed the property manager to do that, um, he sort of asked us, are you sure that might not be the best idea? I wouldn't recommend it. And we said, no, we know what you're doing. Just tell him that and raise the rent. It's only $20, not a big deal. And um, what happened was is that the tenant um, just promptly moved out, right? So they did not renew the lease. Um what they ended up doing was probably move to another vacant unit in the very same building that was at that time renting for about half the rent. Mm. Um, and we stayed uh, with a vacant unit. And the second thing we learned straight after that is that um, Japanese property managers are professional and polite. All professionals here are professional and polite. They wouldn't um, swindle you or cheat you or go out of business and take your cash with them or any of that sort of thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not salesmen or that they're going to give you um, complete and full disclosure and give you the best professional advice because they are, at the end of the day, salesmen and they want to sell. And what we found out is that the uh, the city in which we purchased those units, Kitakyushu, is actually um, not the best uh, probably spot to pick for a beginner investor like ourselves. It's a very blue-collar town. Um, there are a lot of new developments coming up there that are being priced rental-wise at a very similar price to the older developments. So tenants have a lot more options. And the population there, while not in sharp decline, is just about stable or slightly dropping. So it's not the best profile city in the world to invest in. Mm. And we ended up with a vacancy that took us, I think from memory, about a year and a half to fill again. Uh, which was quite painful. At that time, that was 33%, like a third of our income stream. So that was quite a hit for our, or our investment income stream. So that was quite a financial hit for us as well. Um, we ended up populating it at a much lower rent uh, amount and then just sold it at, I think, about 20 or 30% loss compared to when we bought it. Um, so yeah, that was a uh, quite painful, but uh, good lessons learned. <laughs> well, what were the lessons that you learned from this? Um, I think we talk about a lot about uh, due diligence, right? And due diligence does tend to be um, 
in our minds, due diligence tends to be a very practical sort of numbers related matter. So we look at um, uh, income streams, we look at um, risk factors in the sense that, you know, something might suddenly, uh, there might be an unexpected expense down the road or things could be going better or, or not as good in particular locations. But we don't really think about um, cultural cultural and emotional differences when we're dealing in another country. So, yes, the numbers probably apply the same anywhere you go, but there are a lot of other factors that you need to take into account uh, and relying on your knowledge that was gained in another location when you've been investing in your backyard might be not really applicable, might be stark opposite of, of the place that you're going into next. So I guess due diligence also should include um, learning about the professionals that you're dealing with and learning to trust their advice and trying to um, read between the lines when they say something or trying to gauge what it is that they might be trying to say to you but are maybe avoiding for various reasons. Mm. I guess yeah. listen more would be yep. the most important thing. Yep. Got it. Um, well, here's some of the things I take away. I mean, the first, there's a great saying in, in English we say, let sleeping dogs lie. Like, don't poke at a dog that's comfortably sleeping or you could get bitten. Absolutely. Um, so that's kind of the, the first one. I think the other thing about for, for newbies in the area of property, particularly rental, they oftentimes forget about the damage that can be done by having, you know, downtime in between tenants. And that can destroy what looks like a beautiful yield. Um, it also reminds me, a third thing is, you know, we have to be very careful as kind of, as you said, uh, Excel experts and, you know, that type of, you know, person that's a numbers-based person. Uh, one of, one of the, my great teachers, Dr. Deming, taught us that really the, the most important, num you know, the most important things oftentimes in business are unknown and unknowable or maybe unmeasurable. And so sometimes we think we can measure it in a spreadsheet but the human nature of the actual outcome of what we think is the right decision can be very, you know, very different. And then the, the third thing is, uh, I think in Asia, one thing I've learned is um, if you get a little bit of resistance, stop and listen, as you said. Whereas in the West, if we get some resistance, you know, part of what we want to do is get tough and push through it and all that. It's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in Asia, because you're never going to get the same amount of resistance you would get, let's say, in the West, a tiny amount of resistance is a signal uh, that we have to be much more attuned to and stop pushing something through and ask the question, okay, why am I getting this little bit of resistance? And I think that probably one of the biggest mistakes that people make coming to Asia uh, from the West is that they push through and think, you know, let's get this done. And that can be a huge mistake. So those are some of the things I take away. Anything you would add to that? Absolutely. I mean, everything you've said is, is spot on. And we've since obviously learned that. And when we, uh, these days, when we provide the same sort of service for our customer, this was eight years ago now, these are exactly the things that we look at. So we, we, Try to let people know that when somebody, a professional that you're working with is telling you, 
uh, that could be a little bit difficult. That should throw out all the possible red flags. That, just a little bit diffi- difficult is not an invitation to a dance. It doesn't mean, okay, let's, let's do this. It's, it's quite the opposite of that. I mean, if you were anywhere else in the world, then th- there would be a lot of resistance coming in at this point. So you really want to stop and listen and try to understand what that person is uh, trying to say to you. Yeah, it's, I, I can uh, think about when they say that little, little warning it's like a screaming, flashing red light. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Think of that, that person who's got their numbers aligned and they've got it all. It makes sense. You know, increase that rent. What would you tell them? I would say, especially if you're investing out of your backyard and especially if it's for the first time, uh, your due diligence should focus a lot more on the companies and the professionals that you're going to do business with. So you're not going to be, uh, you're not going to be present in person. You're not familiar with that market. You're not going to be able to just walk in there and make things right again. So what you really want to do is make sure that you choose the right people to work with. And once you've, um, you felt, you feel confident that you've done that, just listen to them, talk to them and try to, um, try to, uh, somehow find a way to, um, conglomerate your goals with what that particular environment and the people working in it are suggesting to you. Beautiful. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Um, I think we're going as a business. I mean, personally, things are, are quite good. We're quite happy here. Business-wise, we're going through growing pains. So we've, um, we've established a, a very good practice and you know a lot of loyal customers and we've been doing a lot of deals so much so in fact that we're suddenly noticing that we haven't actually prepared for the growth that we're experiencing so next 12 months are definitely um going to be all about setting up the infrastructure automating processes and just getting things done a lot more smoothly and profitably got it well you're doing it in the right order get the deals Yep. <laughs> set, up, set up the infrastructure before you get the deals and you may, you may just tank your business. So that's uh, the right order. I think it's a bit of a compromise though. We should have uh, probably prepared for this a bit earlier. Yeah. I think we, <laughs> we always feel that, you know, I think, God, we should have fixed this earlier. Yeah. But we had 15 other things going on you exactly. know, at that time. So, you know, it's uh, I was just with my business partner, Dale, for my coffee business last night and we were just discussing about you know our frustration with one area but then we have to take into consideration which what we are working on you know in another area so yeah it's always a balance it's always yeah. a balance so all right listeners there you have it another story of loss to keep you winning to find more stories like this previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk visit my worst investment ever.com as we end, Zib, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones who has turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, thank you very much. Um, great to have you with us. And um, I just maybe let people know, I mean, these days, you don't have to, it's a global world out there, right? You don't have to stay in your backyard and what you're familiar with. If the returns or the attractive investments are not there, just explore. The world's your oyster and it's very practical these days. Right on. Well, and we'll also have uh, all the links in the show notes. So if anybody wants to explore property in Japan, you know where to turn. All right. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. 
I'll see you on the upside. There you go. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? And have you noticed how I go, great to have you with us at the end of the interview, even though I was the one being interviewed? <laughs> That's what you get when a podcaster interviews another podcaster. So yeah, everyone makes mistakes. Obviously, nothing to be ashamed of, unless you're Japanese, in which case mistakes are considered super shameful, which is a shame. See what I've done there? Because really, they're the best way to learn. And the earlier we make them in our investment careers, when we're still just maybe testing the waters or deploying smaller budgets the more protection we have from repeating the same mistake again in the future when the stakes are much higher. Not to mention the fact that it helps keeps us, keep us um, humble and attentive, not just as investors, but also as human beings. So here's to mistakes and to learning from them. If you've got similar stories, by the way, Andrew would love to hear from you. So we'll link to his podcast in the show notes as well. And of course, if your story is at all related to Japan, I'd love to hear it and maybe have you on the podcast as well. So don't be shy. Share your experience or your thoughts or comments or questions in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. And do share it uh, with your networks if you think it'll bring them some value or even just a good laugh. We all need a good laugh these days. And as always, we'd really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on the iTunes store or Spotify, wherever you might be tuning in from, just to help us reach more people. Oh, and yes, don't forget to fill in the next webinar survey form again in the show notes. Make sure we cover the topics that you want us to talk about when we hold the next one, which shouldn't be too far away. That's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed the Japan Real Estate Podcast, and we hope to have you with us next time. Until then, stay safe, ganbatte, hang in there, and yoroshiku.